Please take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 36 this evening. God's Word shall stand. Jeremiah 36. We continue our journey today, uh, not only back in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 36, but as it relates to Jeremiah, we are going, uh, we stay, as we were last week, we stay back in time a little bit. Recall that last week we found ourselves in the days of Jehoiakim as Jeremiah interacted with the Rechabites. And we talked about the Rechabites and, and their faithfulness and and everything that the Lord had to teach the nation of Israel through the faithfulness of the Rechabites to their family. Well, this week we continue with an account of Jeremiah in the days of Jehoiakim. Remember, we've been kind of jumping back and forth a little bit from the days of Zedekiah to the days of primarily Jehoiakim with a little bit in between. We are still in Jehoiakim, and there's a very important context to this particular time or the particular time of this chapter, which we'll talk about in a moment. Let's dig into the text uh, as we've given ourselves the historical context. And the Bible says this in verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that the word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. So we are in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, we find here, likely less than five years after the death of Josiah. If you recall, let me bump back here for a moment. We are in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, likely somewhere less than five years after the death of Josiah, still relatively speaking, early in Jeremiah's ministry. His ministry, we call, began in the days of Josiah, who was a a tremendously godly king. Jehoiakim's ministry began around 609, or his his rule, excuse me, began around 609 BC. And so we're probably somewhere in the range in the fourth year of the 605-606 BC range. Now, why is that important? Recall that the year 605 is very important in Israel's timeline because the year 605 was the year that the first Babylonian deportation happened. It's the first time that Babylon entered into Israel and removed people from the land. At that time, they took some of the best vessels from the temple and they took the princes, including Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. All right, so so at this moment, Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael are still in the land. They're still there in Jerusalem, uh, but we are, we are near that point. We are near the point where the first element of this judgment is at hand. And so as we read what's happening this evening in Jeremiah 36, his actions in many ways here are, if we can call it this, a final effort, a last ditch effort to get through to the king and to get through to the leaders before this first of the three deportations takes place. And the Bible says the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and commands him to take a roll and to write all of the words which God had spoken unto Jeremiah from the days of Josiah unto that point. Now recall, we're not talking about, I mean, Jeremiah's ministry was decades long. We're still relatively speaking early in his ministry, right? So we're not talking about decades and decades, well, we are talking about a a considerable amount of time still, and he is to write it all down. Now, we would expect what Jeremiah was going to write here would be the portions of the very words which we've studied throughout the book, the portions not of Zedekiah's time, right, because Zedekiah is later, but the portions of Jehoiakim, the portions of Josiah.
Josiah, uh, those portions that we had read from earlier in the book. But do recall that a very large portion, as I mentioned, of what we have read and what we have studied already is later in Jeremiah's ministry. So Jeremiah is commanded to pen the words of the Lord. And in verse 3, we see why it is that God wants Jeremiah to put these words down on, uh, on, on a roll. Verse 3 says this, It may be, and this is God here, the word of the Lord, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I propose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. I love this. Again, we see mercy. All throughout Jeremiah, we've seen so much mercy. We have seen God going to such great lengths to give Israel, to give Judah every opportunity to repent. God commands him to pen the words because it may just be that though when Jeremiah spoke them out of his mouth before the ears of the people, they were not listening, it may just be that perhaps when they read those words, or perhaps if they hear them again, maybe, just maybe, they will hear of the evil that would be brought upon them and they would return from their evil. They would repent. It's another tremendous opportunity that God gives them to repent. God's mercy endureth forever, does it not? And God says, if just maybe they'll repent, then I can forgive their sin. So God takes no pleasure in judgment as we've seen throughout Jeremiah and we see throughout the word of God. It is not the heart of God to desire judgment, but it is the nature of God to demand judgment for sin. God is just. God must judge sin. And yet we do see the heart of God here. God says, Jeremiah, you've told them these words, but I want you to give them more. Write them down so that they can read them again. Give them another chance just maybe they'll repent and then I can, in consistency with my character, forgive them and, and I can give them mercy where I would have otherwise given them judgment. Tremendous God that we serve. We continue in verses four through seven. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words which the, uh, of the Lord which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of the book, of a book. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up and cannot go to the house of the Lord. Therefore, go thou and read the roll which thou hast written from my mouth, the words of the Lord in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day. And also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return everyone from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury of that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. So Jeremiah calls for Baruch, the son of Neriah. Now we've seen this guy before, sort of. Back in Jeremiah 32, when Jeremiah purchased his cousin's field just before the city is overthrown by Babylon, if you recall that, Baruch was the witness who validated that transaction between him and his cousin. Baruch was the, if we can call it this, he was the notary, right? He was the guy who, who validated this transaction through his witness. But I say we've only sort of seen him before because in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah was writing in the final days of Zedekiah, which is many, many years after what we see here in Jeremiah 36. And so while we've seen it before in the text, this is actually the first time chronologically we've been introduced to this man, Baruch. Second time we've seen him in the text, the first time chronologically that he appears in Jeremiah's 
accounting. Jeremiah has Baruch write the words that he speaks from the Lord, and then he commands Baruch to take those words and to read them into the temple on what's called the fasting day. Now, no explicit reason is given as to why Jeremiah can't do this himself. He says that he is shut up. However, we don't have any record this early in his ministry of him having been imprisoned. And yet it is apparent that there is some reason why he's unable to enter the temple. And it may be that that he had been, to some degree or another, um, thrown in, in prison and we just don't have record. But I'd like to take a moment and give you a theory on what may actually be happening here based upon a quick review of some events that took place 10 chapters ago in Jeremiah 26. So remember back in Jeremiah 26, at the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jeremiah is told to stand in the court of the temple and to declare God's judgments. The priests and the prophets hear these words and they tell Jeremiah that he must surely die for this proclamation that he has made against the land of Judah. But when the princes, so, so the priests... And the prophets hear it, and they're very angry at Jeremiah. But the princes hear what Jeremiah has to say, which would include Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael at this point, because they were princes that were taken away. The princes hear this, and they say, no, 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 no. This man's saying the word of the Lord. And they defend Jeremiah on that day. And this created a major controversy as to whether or not Jeremiah should die. And he ends up being delivered from death on that day. The princes and the people stand up for Jeremiah, remarking that his message is the same as in the days of Hezekiah, when Micah the Morishthite declared judgment and and Hezekiah responded with a great repentance and the Lord blessed the land for that repentance. And their determination to spare Jeremiah seemed somewhat related to the fact that the king Jehoiakim had already been responsible for the death of one prophet in his reign. Right in those early days of Jehoiakim's reign, there was a prophet named Urijah, the son of Shemaiah. He prophesied of judgment. The king was very angry at him, so he fled down to Egypt. And Jehoiakim sent for him out of Egypt. We'll get back to that a little bit later. Had him brought back up and had him killed. To this end, the scribes and the the princes uh, strongly resisted the call to have Jeremiah killed at this time. Excuse me, the people and the princes. But perhaps it is that due to that circumstance, Jeremiah was banned from the temple. That's my theory, is that he was not allowed into the temple complex anymore on pain of death. If you come here again, you're you're off the hook this time, Jeremiah, but if you come here again, we're going to kill you. And perhaps that was, that was it. We don't know. He simply says that he was shut up. But that is my theory as to perhaps what was going on there. Whatever the reason it is, Baruch is the one who takes this message to the people and he's commanded to do it on the fasting day, which we'll talk more about in a moment. Do notice as well, and again, the object of this attempt, that God's people might hear, might understand, and might repent before Babylon comes in and conquers them which must at this point have been a truly imminent threat. Verses 8 through 10. And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading in the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. And it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people that came from the cities of Jerusalem 
uh, of Judah, excuse me, unto Jerusalem. So Baruch did as Jeremiah asked. He read the words of the Lord in the temple. And specifically we find at this fast day. Now the fast was said to have been declared in the fifth year of Jehoiakim and in the ninth month of that year. Now we don't know fully how Jeremiah reckoned those years. It, it does not necessarily follow uh, that this was a full year after God's command for him to write these words. There are several ways within history that, that the years of kings were reckoned and different peoples, different cultures did it in different ways. Recall that the Jews actually had two calendars. They had a civil calendar and they had a religious calendar. And the civil calendar and the religious calendar were different. We would assume here that Jeremiah was using the civil calendar, not the religious calendar, as he was talking about the various months of Jehoiakim's reign. But there's more than that. Depending on the culture... Various cultures would understand the years of king's reign in a different way. So there would be some cultures where the very first year of, of the king's reign would be called his ascension year and it effectively would not count. And the year one of their reign would begin on January 1st of the year after they rose to the throne. So if a guy rose to the throne on January 2nd, uh, uh, we'll use our timetable. If somebody came into power on January 2nd, of 2019, his first year would begin on January 1st of 2020 because it would not, the first year was just kind of called the ascension year. There were others who would count the entire year in which a person came into power as the first year. So if a person came into power on December 31st of 2019, he would have reigned for a full year on January 1st of 2020. Uh, that, would, that would be his second year of reign because the first year was that, that year. So these timetables are reckoned differently. And as a matter of fact, even between the kings and the Chronicles, as we talk about the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah, the, the, the years are reckoned slightly differently depending on whether you're talking about the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah or, say, the king of Nebuchadnezzar. What year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign? Well, did they count the ascension year or didn't they? Right? So there is this wiggle room within this that we don't really really fully know exactly what Jeremiah is talking about here as it relates to the, the fullest extent of how long it was between when he was commanded to write these words and when these things are taking place. But we do know that it was in the ninth month of the fifth year that, that there was this fast. And as it relates to the civil calendar, there is no dedicated fasting day on the ninth month. And seeing that there was no dedicated fasting day, it seems likely that this is a fast that the king called. And perhaps he called it specifically as a last-ditch effort. That Babylon is coming, they're besieging, right? We're probably around that 605 mark now, and Babylon is knocking at the door, and perhaps the king calls a fast, saying, let's petition the Lord that, that he would spare us. And this is the fast at which Baruch reads these words in the ears of all those who came to Jerusalem for this fast, telling them how it was that they could avert judgment. Verses 11 and 12. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, had heard out of the book all the words of the Lord, then he went down into the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and lo, all the princes sat there, even Elishama, the scribe, and Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, and Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and Gemariah, the son of Shaphan and Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. 
So the message is heard by a man named Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, who is the son of Shaphan. Shaphan was the godly scribe in the days of Josiah, who was cleaning out the temple when they found the book of the law, the law, read it, then went to Josiah and read the book of the law to him and said, we are in trouble if this thing is true, right? That's that Shaphan. And that caused the king to seek unto the Lord. So his grandson, Micaiah, hears the reading of the words of the Lord, and he goes into the chamber of the king's uh, house, into where all the scribes were and the prince. And and he, he tells them about this thing. The Bible tells us that there were a number of people there. Elishama, who was a scribe. Deliah, who was the son of Shemaiah. Shemaiah being a priest in the days of Josiah as well. Elnathan, the son of Akbar. Uh, Akbar. We saw him back in Jeremiah 26. And that's going to come up again very importantly a little bit later in, in my first point of application. Elnathan... Was El Nathan, the son of Akbor, was one of the men in the extradition party that went down to Egypt to get Uriah to bring him back up to be killed. Keep that in mind. Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah. Hananiah was the false prophet in Jeremiah 28 who would, uh, would get engaged in that prophet's duel with Jeremiah in the days of King Zedekiah. And if you recall, that ended with him dying according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Among these were all the princes. And again, I presume here, if all the princes were there, so was Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Probably fairly young at this point. Maybe not there because they were so young. But they were of the princes, to be sure, that had not yet been taken away into Babylon. Verses 13 and 14. Then Micaiah declared unto them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the ears of the people. Therefore, all the princes sent Jehudi, the son of Neth, uh, Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, unto Baruch, saying, Take in thine hand the roll wherein thou hast read in the ears of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the roll in his hand and came unto them. Fairly self-explanatory. They send for Baruch. Baruch comes with the scroll. Verses 15 through 19. And they said unto him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Baruch read it in their ears. He's basically just reading Jeremiah to them. Now it came to pass when they had heard all the words that they were afraid, both one and other, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Then Baruch answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then said the princes unto Baruch, Go hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, let no man know where ye be. Once again, we see here that Jeremiah must not be in prison because he's allowed to go hide with Baruch, right? So he can't be in prison if he's able to go and to hide. Um, so what, him being shut up is not him being shut up in prison. We don't, that, that, hence my theory. So the people in the room were touched by what God had heard. And they were gravely concerned about the, their nation. They're here in this time of fasting, right? It's a fast day. They are fasting for God's mercy. And the message of the prophet is saying, you are going to be destroyed if you don't repent. And that's the only way that that mercy is going to be found. So the princes determined the king really needs to hear these words. And they instruct Baruch to leave the scroll with them. And then to go with Jeremiah and to hide somewhere. Not to let anyone know where they are. By this we might understand that they did not expect the reading of the word of God to go very well. 
because they don't even want to know where Jeremiah, you go hide, don't tell us where you're hiding, you go hide so that when the king asks us, where is Jeremiah, where is Baruch, we can say, I don't know. We really don't know where he is, right? Because they did not expect this to go well. It seems very likely that the, and I'm making an assumption here, but it seems likely that the events of Jeremiah 26 had already happened, that they had already experienced the death of Uriah, and they did not want Jeremiah to be added to that list. They wanted to make sure they didn't have to lie to the king when he asked where Jeremiah and Baruch were. They wanted to make sure they didn't know where they were. They wanted them to hide and to tell no man where they were. It's likewise apparent that these are men of faith, that they love their country. They know full well God's wrath for sin. They have a desire, as we saw in Jeremiah 26, to align with the Lord, a very natural afterglow of the reign of good King Josiah. Verses 20 and 21. And they went into the king, into the court. But they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So they didn't bring the scroll with them. So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. So the princes go to the court of the king. They, they leave the roll. They say, King, we have heard these words. This has been proclaimed against the nation. You need to listen. But they, they didn't bring the roll with them. The king sends for the roll. They go and get the roll. Jehudi brings it. He reads it before the king. The princes are standing there. What a tremendous opportunity, right? The king is hearing the words of the Lord written by Jeremiah. Jeremiah's message is getting out to people that it didn't get to before. But that excitement dies out pretty quickly. Continuing in verse 22. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month. It was cold at that time. And there was a fire in the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a penknife, cast into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Nevertheless, Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah had made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll. But he would not hear them. But the king commanded Jeramael, the son of Hamelech, and Seraiah, the son of Azrael, and, Shem, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdael, to take Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. So it was the ninth month. The king was in his winter house. The fire was roaring to keep them all warm. Jehudi's reading the roll, and as he reads it, as he gets through several leaves of the roll, they cut them and they toss them into the fire until the whole scroll is burned. All the while, Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah are begging the king, no, don't burn these words. You need to listen to these words. Don't burn these words. He would not hear them. There was no shame. There was no repentance. There was no interest. There was no fear of God before their eyes. They did not fear God. Ironic. Consider the irony of that with me. Baruch is reading these words to the people during a proclaimed fast. A fast, right? A time to deny the flesh in order to seek to the Lord. And it is in this time of fasting that those words are then brought before the king that the king might hear these words. And the king is listening to these words at the time of the proclaimed fast before the Lord. And yet, as the words are entering into the ears of the king, as those words are being read, they are cutting them off and they are tossing them into the flames unafraid. They did not rend their garments. They showed no mourning. They showed nothing that, that was reflective of a fast. 
Nothing that was reflective of a heart that was positioned toward the actual process of mourning that a fast would reflect. As the words were read, they proceeded to defy them in every way. And then the king calls for Baruch and Jeremiah to be seized, but they could not be found because they had hid. Verses 27 and 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll. And the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned. So the word of the Lord then comes to Jeremiah again. God says, Take another roll, write it all again. See, see God, God's word doesn't go away just because the roll goes away, right? God's word doesn't go away just because the roll is burned. Nothing about what God said altered one jot or one tittle because the king burned the scroll. Nothing about what God said altered one jot or one tittle because the, the king was not interested and did not fear the word of the Lord. Nothing that God has said in this book alters one jot or one tittle because we don't believe it. Nothing that, the, that, that this book says alters at all because people decide they don't want to read it. Nothing about what this book says alters at all if we throw it in the fire. God's words stand. So God tells Jeremiah, write it again. God inspires Jeremiah to speak the words again. Baruch pens the words again. All the king has done is seal his own judgment and the judgment of the nation. We'll read about that as we continue. Verses 29 through 31. God continues here. He says, And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall surely come and destroy this land, and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat, in the night to the frost, and I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them, but they hearkened not. So God then adds some revelation to what Jeremiah has written, declaring that the king will now have no one to sit upon the throne of David. His line is to be cut off and his dead body is to just be cast out outside the city to rot. Now it's important to note a couple things about this. First, he was killed by Babylon and his body was cast out the city. He did not get buried. He was not put in the king's sepulchers. He was just tossed to the wild animals. His son did reign in his stead, for, but only for three months, after which the king of Babylon deposed him, put Zedekiah in his place, and there were none other of his posterity to sit upon the throne as God had promised. Also, saying that his seed would be punished, the city would be punished, and that what God had promised would surely come to pass because they would not obey, they would not listen. It was an added, instead of, instead of bringing about mercy, it sealed their doom. The chapter finishes in verse 32. Then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. And of course, we've studied many of those like words as we've continued through the book of Jeremiah. That's the exposition of this very interesting chapter. I'd like us to apply this evening three primary points with a few subpoints underneath. Let's begin our application this evening by talking about El Nathan. 
this is going to be a bit of a spiritual imagining for me, a bit of a guilty pleasure. Uh, I'm going to be significantly speculative in this first point, but, but I believe that it is um, founded, though speculative, uh, a bit of uh, uh, spiritual imagination here. We saw this name, this man, L. Nathan, and it's the same one, come up in this chapter a couple of times. One of the men who was in the scribe's chamber when Micaiah came and told them of the words of the Lord from the mouth of Baruch. One of the men that was listening when the words of the Lord were read. One of the men who went to the king to tell the king what they had heard. One of the men who was begging the king not to burn the words of the book. This is an interesting characterization of El Nathan because of his connection to Jeremiah 26. That he was one of the men who was sent by Jehoiakim down to Egypt to bring Uriah the prophet back from Egypt to Jerusalem after which he was killed. Consider the details of those verses with me. Jeremiah 26, 21 and 22. The Bible says, When Jehoiakim the king with all his mighty men and all the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went into Egypt. And Jehoiakim the king sent men into Egypt, namely Elnathan the son of Akbar and certain men with him into Egypt. Jeremiah only names one guy that went down there, Elnathan the son of Akbar. An interesting contrast between Jeremiah 26 and Jeremiah 36 as it relates to this guy. Now, remember earlier in the sermon we mentioned why it was possible and even likely that those events of Jeremiah 26 took place before the events here in Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 26 introduces the timeline as taking place in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. Early days of Jehoiakim. We're now in the fourth, the fifth year of the reign of Jehoiakim uh, in 605. Jehoiakim reigns for 11 years, so we're, about, we're near the midpoint. It's still, it's still the beginning of his reign, but quite likely Uriah was earlier. Jeremiah was preaching in the temple at that time. Now Jeremiah says he's shut up, he can't go to the temple. And as they decided whether or not Jeremiah should be killed, of course they recounted that the death of Uriah had already taken place, right? So Jeremiah in Jeremiah 26 was there preaching in the temple, and as they were deciding whether to kill him, they said, remember, Uriah's already been killed. He spoke the word of the Lord. So that happened even before Jeremiah was in the temple. And now Jeremiah's written these words. They're being read by Baruch in the temple just before 605 B.C. And by this, I believe it's fairly well-founded to think that the events with Uriah happened before these events here on this day that we're reading about in Jeremiah 36. And that brings us back to El Nathan. He was the only man mentioned of this crew that brought Uriah back to be killed. Now, we don't know why, how this went about, why he brought him back. It may have been that El Nathan did not know why the king wanted him. That, that Uriah was afraid he fled down to Egypt. And maybe Jehoiakim said something to the effect of, hey, bring him back. I want to reason with him. And he brought him back and then he killed him. And El Nathan had no idea that that was going to happen. That's possible. But it may also be that El Nathan went down there at the behest of the king, 
brought Uriah back at the behest of the king, saw him killed, and something clicked in him. And by this, I'm reminded of the very same lesson that God desired Judah to understand in this chapter. That the disposition of your past does not need to define the disposition of your future. There's always a place for repentance. There's always a place for repentance. You know, there are actions we commit. There's things we say, things we do, which have lasting consequences, aren't there? The things in our past, they cannot be undone. We cannot go into a time machine and undo them. That's why as we talk about things in our country today, people are talking about reparations. It's such a foolish idea. We can't undo the problems of the past in, in, in the present. The past is the past, right? It's done. It's done. But just because our past may usher in consequences, just because our past may affect us, just because of the things that we've done in our past are in our past, it doesn't have to define our future. You've made some mistakes. We all have, because we're all human. Some of those mistakes among some of us here may, may have defined various aspects of who we are, of where we are now, where we are financially, where we are emotionally, where our families are, the choices that they have made. Some of these things might fill us with deep regret, wishing that the choices that, we may, uh, that, that we've made in the past we, we would not have made. Wishing that we could go back and do things differently, but you can't change the past. You can't. Thank God, however, we can change the future. El Nathan served the king and brought back the prophet to be killed. Again, we don't know all the ins and outs of why it was, but we do know that Jeremiah mentioned his name specifically in verse 26, and I doubt that was an accident. Why only mention El Nathan there? Well, because of what we see in Jeremiah 36. He's begging the king not to burn the words of Jeremiah. He's encouraging Jeremiah to go hide himself from the king. He's responding to the word of the Lord. Just 10 chapters after, he was sent down to bring Uriah back and Uriah was killed. There is mercy to be found of God in repentance. We don't need to atone for the past because all of our sins, past and present, future, they rest under the blood of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But don't let the mistakes of the past hold you down in the present. Don't let them hold you under the lie of self-condemnation. Don't let them hold you under the lies of unforgiveness. Christ died for those sins. He did. Christ died for those sins. He bore those sins. And he declared on the cross, it is finished. They are as much under the blood as anything. And yes, forgiveness doesn't make all the consequences go away. That's, that's, that's life. But those consequences need not live on in your life as an enduring testimony of your failures, but rather as an enduring testimony of God's mercy and both his capacity and his desire to bring about restoration. Every person who has ever been restored through repentance from rebellion is a trophy of mercy and is a trophy of God's grace. Don't forget that. So that to whatever degree we allow our mistakes of our past to define us today, it's not because you must allow the weight of those mistakes upon your shoulders. It's not because God wants you to carry that burden, but only because you're choosing to carry something that Jesus Christ has already carried on the cross. 
whether through some misplaced sense of penance over what Christ has already borne, or whether through some false pride that keeps you from accepting full forgiveness and restoration, let it be known that if you carry about the spiritual weight of past consequences upon you, or past decisions upon you, it's not God's will, nor is it His decree that you would carry that burden with you, because God is a God of restoration. God loves you. And what we see in this chapter is that even after, after all of these years of Jeremiah proclaiming judgment, right before 605, right before this first deportation, what is God busy about doing? Telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah, get busy writing these words in a book, proclaim them before the people one last time, if perchance I might just be able to forgive them and to restore them. And you know, it doesn't end here, does it? 605 comes and it goes. Daniel's there. It's Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They're in Babylon. And what does God get, get busy doing? Jeremiah, I've got another message for you. Preach repentance. Preach mercy. And he does it until the end. He keeps preaching it because God is a God of mercy. God is a God of restoration for those who repent. And I believe El Nathan is a really neat picture of that. I think he's a really neat picture of one who got caught up in something bad. Uh, we don't know how much he knew. Again, that's all speculative. But 10 chapters later, he's begging the king not to burn the words of the Lord. 10 chapters later, he is imploring the king to listen to the prophet. Point number two. What is outside is only as good as what is inside. We spoke already of the great irony in the fact that the abject rejection of God, of his declaration of judgment, to the extent that the king burned the words of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah and penned by Baruch, came at a time when the king had declared a fast, a time of national mourning. Likely, again, there's some... There's some speculation there, but likely some sort of last-ditch effort to appeal to God to keep the threat of Babylon at bay. And these two realities, when, when juxtaposed one with another, reveal a deep and abiding insincerity in the efforts of the king to appeal to the heart of God. He was willing to do all of the external things necessary in an attempt perhaps to manipulate God into bringing about some form of mercy or, 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 or of, of uh, lack of, or of, of, of a uh, delay or an allay of judgment. But his heart was never there. His heart was never in it. In fact, it would appear that the king sought in a manner of speaking, as I said, to manipulate God into showing mercy by making an outward show of repentance while being entirely uninterested in actually aligning himself with God. And if there's something that the Bible makes very clear, it's this. That never works. It just, it can't work because God who sees and knows the heart is not going to be fooled by our external trappings. What is outside, the actions we take, the words we say, the things we do, they are only as good, Christian, in the eyes of God as they are a manifestation of what's already inside. The heart with which we do them. This concept is certainly not foreign to we who live in the New Testament as our Lord made it abundantly clear throughout his earthly ministry. But it's not just a New Testament principle. It is, it is beyond abundant 
in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. I'm going to read it. It's a little bit longer. Follow it with me. Isaiah writes this. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of the goats, or of he goats, excuse me. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain, empty oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meetings. He says, all of these things that you do according to the law, they're disgusting to me. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will not hide mine eyes from you. Or excuse me, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make Many prayers I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doing from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together. He says, just reason together with me. Think through this with me. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though ye be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. In the days of Isaiah, this was the very message. This is chapter 1. This is chapter 1. God says, look, you think that just because you bring the sacrifices that the law asks of you, just because you do the new moons and the Sabbaths and the feasts and the prayers and the oblations and the incense, you think that just because you're doing those external trappings, you're right with me. And if I am some sort of good luck charm that's obligated to bless you simply because of, of you bringing animals, then, then, well, then what good is God, right? God says, I'm not a good luck charm. You don't just put a quarter into me and you get a piece of bubble gum. That's not how God works. Much to the contrary, God says, your sacrifices, your oblations, your feasts, they're, not, they're abhorrent to me. He, he says, they are iniquity. They are sin to me. He says, stop the incense burning. It's an abomination. Stop the sacrifices. They are purposeless. They are vain. They are empty. Stop the Sabbath observances and the new moons. They are sin to me because you do all of these things in word. But as you're doing those, those things in word, all of those externals, you are, your hands are full of blood. You are robbing people. You are, you are not taking care of the widows. You are oppressing the fatherless. You are doing evil in my sight. You bring your sacrifices to me, but not with a heart of repentance or humility, seeking to be right with me, but rather you bring them with a heart of pride, hoping to pacify me while not at all caring about what I actually want from you. All of the religious trappings without any of the heart. God says, I don't want it. We see it in, in excuse me, Hosea chapter 6. Verses four through six. He says, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? 
For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Therefore have I hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God says, what I really want is your heart, your obedience. God describes the nation as the morning clouds. They appear on the horizon, but they dissipate without bringing any rain. I saw this all the time growing up in Colorado. There was a time of year where Colorado becomes very consistently inconsistent. It would rain in the afternoon every day, and every morning, every morning you'd see rain clouds, but it would produce nothing, every morning. It's like they'd be there, and then they'd just dissipate with the sun. And he also calls the morning dew, right? The morning dew is there in the morning, and it's on the grass, and the grass is wet, but as soon as the sun comes out, it's all gone, right? There's nothing left of it. it it's, it's there, but it, it, as soon as something hits it, as soon as, as there, there's any substance that touches it, it's like, boom. You're gone. God says, that's you. You're fleeting. You're inauthentic. You're hypocritical. You're proud. God says, what I really want is for you to bear the fruit of one who loves me. Mercy, not sacrifice. Know me. Don't just bring me burnt offerings. And look, the point of this is not that God is repudiating his own law. It isn't that God didn't want sacrifices at all under the law. This is a strong and decisive way for God to tell the nation that their external actions were only as good as the heart with which they did them. God is not some good luck charm who exists to give us what we want as long as we say the right words or, or, or invoke the right catchphrases or, 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 or align ourselves with the right rituals. That's not God. Because we're not in a religious relationship. We're not in a religion with God. We're in a relationship with God, right? One more of these, though we could go to many more. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. It's familiar. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord, Micah writes, or, and bow myself before the Most High God, before the High God, my apologies. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. What does God really want of you? Does he want calves of a year old burned in his honor? Does he want rivers of oil poured out unto him? Does he want us to go so far as to sacrifice our firstborn on the altar just to show our devotion for him? No. All of those things are, are, are just externals. Obviously, God would never want human sacrifice anyway. We know that, right? He says, I've showed you what I want. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with me. Give me your heart. Love me. If God has your love, it is all but inevitable that all of the actions that he wants of you will follow. But your actions, apart from your love, are of no interest to God. And if we get too far down that path, as Israel did, then those actions are not only uninteresting to God, but they become blasphemous to God. They become another attempt by man to fool God into blessing him for no reason. They become blasphemy. And God does not play this game. He knows our hearts. He's not obligated to bless us just because we've done something moral. 
God did not regard the fast of the nation in the ninth month because it was a blasphemous attempt to manipulate him. While they were simultaneously fasting unto the Lord, the king was ordering Jeremiah's words to be cut up and thrown into the fire, revealing that his heart was very, very far from God. They never aligned with God's heart. They never repented of their sin. There was no fear of God before their eyes. Look, we can get dressed up and we can come here and we can sing our hymns and we can do our stuff and we can go and we can come and we can say the words we're going to say and not say the words we're not going to say and we can watch and not watch and we can, we, we, can, we can listen to or not listen to. We can do all of that all day. But if when we hear the word of God, there's no fear of God before our eyes, if we have simply disciplined our flesh into a bunch of moral rules and there's no fear of God before our eyes, and there's no humility in our hearts, and there is no desire to seek the Lord as he may be found, then there's something deeply wrong. Because what is outside is only as good as what is inside. Number three, the text was rewritten. Number one, because God's word cannot be broken. God tells Jeremiah to write the words again, and from this we draw three lessons. That first lesson, God's word cannot be broken. Like the child playing with his parent who is convinced that when the child covers his eyes, his parents can't see him. Remember playing that? Every one of my kids. You can't see me, right? The child covers his own eyes and is insistent that therefore his, his parents can't see him. Humans are so good at fooling themselves into thinking that if they can only remove enough Christian stuff or if they can only remove God far enough from their consciousness, if they can only remove God far enough from their sphere of remembrance, that somehow that means God's going to go away. It does not work that way. Covering your eyes and closing your ears may keep you from seeing the truth or from hearing the truth, but it doesn't change the existence of the truth one little bit. And when we see the words of God being written again from the mouth of Jeremiah, we are reminded of this reality that God's word doesn't go away just because we choose to ignore it, just because we don't believe it, just because we have gone out of our way to remove it from our consciousness, because God's word cannot be broken. Second, the text was rewritten because God's judgment is sure. The second thing we learn from God telling Jeremiah to write the words again is that God's judgment is going to happen whether or not that, that scroll was burned or not. Burning the scroll did not change the words of the Lord. It did not change his proclamations of judgment. God is just. God is holy. No amount of flowery language, no amount of earthly authority, no earthly authority, no redefinition of terms can circumvent the realities of what the Word of God says, that God must deal with sin. The sowing and reaping principle, the realities of a just and holy God. We'll talk more about the sowing and reaping principle uh, in a couple of weeks. Number three. The text was rewritten because God's mercy endures forever. Remember why it was. God did not say, write these words and declare them in the ears of the people so that you can rub salt in the open wounds of their judgment. That's not what God said. God said, write these words and declare them before the ears of the people just maybe, because just maybe in hearing them, they will repent. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
God has ordained that the foolishness of preaching would be the means by which the wisdom of God is imparted into this world. It is not so that man can learn of the hopelessness of his inevitable judgment. That's not why I get up every week and preach. That's not why we go out and show the world and tell the world and, and live a testimony and declare a testimony. We don't do it so that people can walk away saying, I am hopelessly lost. We do it. God has called us to do it so that man can learn of the mercy that is offered to all who don't want to step into the path of that judgment. The word of God is the embodiment of God's goodness. The goodness of God that leads to repentance. That he has revealed himself to us, made himself known unto us, is how we can avoid judgment and be ushered into his mercy. The text being rewritten is not just or even not primarily a reminder of God's judgment still standing. It is, according to the text itself, primarily a reminder that God, even in that late hour, was still interested in getting the people to understand how it was they could avoid judgment and find mercy through repentance. The word of God is true from beginning to end, penned for our learning, for our instruction, for our edification that we might know the nature of God, the nature of man, and our relationship to him. And knowing these things, it then rests upon us to do something about it, to determine that we are going to believe it, that we're going to obey it, that if God has said it, we're going to believe it because we love God. How are you doing this evening? Are you resting in the realities of the scriptures which cannot be broken? Are you resting in the reality that there is a path of mercy through repentance unto restoration? Have you allowed past decisions, things that have happened in your past to, to uh, rest upon you as a burden rather than recognizing that the blood of Jesus Christ has, has cleansed us from that unrighteousness? That though your sins be as scarlet, they have or, or could be, depending on where you are in the process, they have been made as white as snow. Are you living with regrets that Christ has already borne? Are you living with shame that Christ has already borne? Are you living under condemnation that Christ has already borne? For those that haven't made the decisions yet, the word of God, the way of life, are you listening to it? To avoid the snare, to avoid that path. Are you living an inside-out existence today? where your actions and your intentions are driven by a love for God, a desire unto a relationship with Him? Or are you like the nation of Israel, seeking to God by holding a fast while simultaneously cutting up His word and throwing it in the fire? Are you living that contradiction or are you living an inside-out manner of life whereby you are driven to do by, what, by, 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 by how you love God? Are you trusting in God's word, resting in God's word, thriving in God's word, knowing it to be the communicative link between you and God, or have you let God's word kind of fall off in your life? These are the lessons that we can learn from Jeremiah 36, and may God help us through his Holy Spirit to understand their relation to our lives this evening. Let's close in prayer. 
Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.